Acts chapter 7, verse 1 to 15, from the New International Version. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in the deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigners, the fatherless, or the widows, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and says, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will, do, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, and the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. If you're semi-liturgical, when someone says this is the word or the word of the Lord, you respond by saying, thanks be to God. Let's try it again. The word of the Lord. All right. See, we're becoming Lutheran, uh, Pentecostal, Anabaptists here, right? A little bit of everything. Uh, This text, and we are in the Lenten season, and and hello, I'm glad you're here this morning. My name's Shell. I'm uh, the pastor here at Pilgrim Church. And uh, the Lenten season in the church, some evangelicals, 30% some estimate, also follow the church calendar. And traditionally, it's the the days, the 40 days leading up to uh, the 40 or 50. I just, my mind just blanked on me. Somebody Google that quick. Uh, 40 days, not counting Sundays, leading up to Easter Sunday. Why we don't count Sundays in it is because Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the dead in the calendar historically, and so we still celebrate and we feast on Sunday, and some people fast during the other days or part of the week. But the season has been a traditional time for Christians to think about repentance. And we've been wrestling with parts of the book of Jeremiah, which is not a happy book in the Bible. Uh, uh, He is known as the weeping prophet. Uh, He's uh, a frustrated prophet as well because his words aren't being heard. Uh, But we're reading those through some Jeremiah. Next week, we're going to talk about the passage about the potter and the clay. And there is a turn for hope that happens in Jeremiah. We're just not there yet. So uh, if you're feeling a bit like, oh my goodness, this is heavy. Yes, indeed, it is. As Fu was reading that first part of chapter 7, which is called the Temple Sermon, a story came to mind of Lee Eklov in a church, in, uh, in his church, about a conversation between a first grader named Max 
and his dad, Todd. So the first grader named Max and the dad, Todd. And Todd says to Max, why don't you answer me when I call to you to his first grader? And Max said, I I didn't hear you, Dad. What do you mean you didn't hear me? Uh, Todd responds, and Max is just quiet. Dad says to, again, the first grader says, how many times did you not hear me? Max, taking the bait, says, I don't know, maybe three or four. How many times do we not hear God? Oh, God is speaking, but are we, are we, we ignoring? We're not listening. As we read through these verses here, and another story comes to mind as well uh, from a movie that I cannot recommend, the Godfather series. <laughs> and half of you are going to hell, the rest of you are in heaven. All right, great. <laughs> Go in peace and serve the Lord. Um, we're done. Uh, in this movie series, there is a, 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 a part of the story where the lead mafia character, and this is about the Italian mafia and their crime and their violence and their murder, and the lead mafia character, Michael Corleone, is in the local Catholic parish that his family worshipped in, and his nephew, I believe it was his nephew, is getting christened, or christened, getting baptized as an infant. We don't practice that as Baptists. Uh, but he's doing that, and he's up front of this ornate church, and there's a, a font, uh, 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 basically a big basin with water in it, a baptismal font that the water scooped out of and poured over the person if they're an adult uh, or as a baby, the baby's held over it, and water is dripped over them as they're being baptized, usually by sprinkling or pouring in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, this small child. And Michael Corleone is there as the sponsor for this child being baptized with his parents who are Uh, Again, his family members, also called the Godfather, uh, ironically. And as he's standing there, he has to repeat on behalf of the child and the parents the creed, the Apostles' Creed uh, or the Nicene Creed, that we believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, and, and, and the priest, the pastors, ask him to repeat these words. Michael, do you believe that there is one God revealed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And he goes on and says, yes, I do. Do you believe that Jesus died? The language is more ornate, but to give you the picture, do you believe that Jesus died and rose again for the remission of sins? Yes, I do. And while all of this is going on in this ritual of baptism, and he's confessing the creed in this Catholic parish, in this beautiful building, he has ordered all of his rivals to be murdered on that exact same moment throughout the city and the region that they are the mafia family, uh, one of the mafia families in. And so it flips between Michael in this church and his tie and his suit and the infant and the priest and the family and his saying this confession of I believe in God the Father, the mighty uh, uh, maker of heaven and earth of all that is seen and unseen. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father and going on and on. I believe in one true holy Catholic and apostolic church. I believe in the remission of sins. I believe in the life to come. You're seeing it goes between that and people being murdered throughout this region. His enemies being brutally killed. He stands in the house of God, confessing faith with his mouth, having one of his family members standing as a sponsor for one of his family members to enter into this covenant of faith, while at the same time he has ordered violence against all of his enemies. Exact same moment. It's an amazing scene. Again, I can't recommend it and wouldn't play it in church. But that's something like what's happening here between little Max saying, well, yes, I didn't hear you three times, Dad, and Michael Corleone, I believe in God the Father, the Almighty. Well, 
his henchmen are carrying out murder and violence. This sort of sets the stone or that's the stage for what we see in much of Jeremiah and this stage in the life of the ancient people of Israel. And this sermon right here in Jeremiah 7, and again, as we go through Jeremiah, we're not going to do all of the chapters because we would be in Jeremiah for five years and I would literally kill the church because it's such a happy book. But this is called sort of Jeremiah's temple sermon. It's also referred to in chapter 26 in Jeremiah where we have the reactions of the people who heard this sermon, where chapter 7 is more of the sermon, uh, distilled the sermon itself there. And to give you some background The people of God that God had raised up, Israel, this insignificant nation, had now come through a whole phase of there had been a divided empire, their kingdom split in two, and the northern kingdom has been taken away captive by the larger global powers around them. And the southern empire called Judah, uh, the northern kingdom at that point, or had been called Israel, the whole thing was Israel at one point, but the northern kingdom was Israel, southern kingdom was Judah. Judah was the only one left, and Judah also had the capital city, the old capital of Jerusalem, as its capital. And many kings had been raised up after Solomon's time. It started with Solomon falling away, but then his sons and the generations later chased after false gods. There were times of revival and the nation turning back to the true worship of the one true God revealed as Yahweh to them. And here, uh, again, this back and forth had happened, but slowly the nation continued to descend and deteriorate And it was a trajectory down into complete and eventually complete exile. Jeremiah's ministry is during the last kings of the nation of Judah before it is taken away in exile to Babylon and Jerusalem becomes ruined and destroyed. He is ministering at a time where there's this sense that the people have forgotten who they are. They have forgotten the worship of God and they've chased after other gods. They have done a little bit of what we call syncretism. They, they, they said, well, if a little bit of Yahweh worship, and then I'll do a little bit of worship of the God of Molech and the Queen of Heaven, uh, the gods of the people around us, and they mesh them all together. If a little bit of this is good, then let's try a little bit of everything. So they had religion pouring out of their ears a mile wide, but only an inch deep. And they thought they could do all these things. And so Jeremiah is coming, and God raises up Jeremiah sort of as one last plea to the people before he uses Babylon to bring complete and utter judgment on them under the system of the Old Testament. I'm going to say a little more, but I want to pause and pray for just a moment. Would you join with me? Lord, as we look at this text on this Lenten season, out of the Old Testament, which before you came, but is ultimately pointing to you, we ask, Holy Spirit, you said that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correction, rebuke, wisdom, we want to learn today. And God, I know as a pastor I can study, I can dig in, I can wrestle with the different theological viewpoints, I can distill that. On a good day I can tell a good story. But I know ultimately that I don't change hearts. Your word by the power of the Holy Spirit in the gathered community and the foolishness, as Paul says, the Apostle Paul of preaching can do something. And so God, I make myself your holy fool today a saint and sinner in process like everyone else, that you might breathe something new into someone here today, that we leave a little bit differently than we came in because we have paused and encountered community and your spirit in community. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in Jeremiah 7. What a text, what a text. This temple sermon is verses 1 through 15, if you're looking in your uh, outline today. 
or looking on the screen. And it can be divided up into a, a subsection as well, verses 3 through 7, verses 8 through 11, and verses 12 through 15. And that's how we're going to look at it today, verses 3 through 7, uh, 8 through 11, and 12 through 15. The key that I want us to zero in on today, if I were to distill this whole teaching in one word, is authenticity. And if you're willing to, would you say with me, authenticity? Authenticity. Authenticity. I would say that most of us would value authenticity, or at least we would give it lip service. We would say, yes, we value being real is another way of saying that. We value authenticity. And yet so often we live lives that are riven by inauthenticity. And this passage, as I go through it, and the, the larger chapter, actually this section goes through chapter 8, verse 3, and we're not going to do all of that today, uh, but it really speaks to me about this idea of the power of authenticity and the power of inauthenticity in how we do life together, and how we pursue the Lord, and how we live as good neighbors towards others around us. This issue of authenticity, that authenticity opens us up to the possibility of true change and transformation through honesty about where we're at. And from a Christian context, it doesn't stop at authenticity, but then we take the next step and say, okay, by being vulnerable before the Lord and before others, I'm inviting his presence to come in and maybe touch those parts of my life that need to change because it's authentic, but it's broken. In some cases, it's authentic, and we walk with that weakness through our whole life. And in other things, it's affirmation. God's saying, that I've, I've made you good deep down. I created you good. But yes, it's a war zone, and we're all affected by it through our culture, through our genetics, through all of it. And so we don't just blindly affirm in that sense of authenticity, well, I'm being the real me, and then we leave it at that. No, we go to the next step and say, what parts of that are things that need to change because they're they're harming me or they're causing me to harm others by breaking community and doing things that build up relationship and love. And so this false worship is one of the charges that's brought up here in this chapter. I want us to go a little deeper this morning in looking at Jeremiah's call to authenticity, or rather the Lord's call through Jeremiah to that as we dig in today. So if you're looking at your Bible, and I encourage you to do that as we do this type of message where we're spending time in one passage primarily, to kind of follow along with me. That way you know I'm not making it up as I go along. Not that I would ever do that, but there you can follow along as well. Take notes, bring a notebook, uh, jot down things that the Holy Spirit may speak to you during a sermon. That's one way to listen to a sermon well, is to actually sort of take some notes as you go along. Uh, So I encourage you to at least consider that. So chapter 26, what's going on behind the text, a little more background, is at the beginning of the king Jehoiakim's reign around 609 BC. And I don't normally spend a lot of time with the historical detail, but I think it's important because there's so many people out there saying that this is completely stuff that's made up, that somebody went out in a cave and, uh, you know, had, a, had too much pizza and uh, this is what they came up with. This is rooted in actual history, verifiable history, much of it, including Jesus, the historicity of Jesus. But this is during the reign of Jehoiakim. These are real people in real time and real things going on in a real city. The primary thing behind this chapter that we're looking at I think it relates to authenticity, but there's some other big themes that come out here as well. Jeremiah's denouncing a form of religiosity of the temple, that this temple that was now built in Jerusalem, which was the center of Yahwehism, the center of the worship of Yahweh in Israel, where people came to make sacrifices and pray and to seek the Lord, 
where priests ministered, that at this point, this temple ideology of how we are the people of Israel had a political religious nexus in that rooted in the, in the building of the temple and the stuff that was done in and around the temple. This temple was seen as the ultimate promise to the ancient Judites that, that they would never be defeated as long as the temple was there, that God would manifest his presence in the temple and that the God of Israel would protect them from any and all things. And this temple ideology became so woven in them. As long as the temple's there, everything's fine. We can do anything we want as long as we go through the ritual and make sure that temple's taken care of. It doesn't matter. As long as the building's standing, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, all of the other powers, ultimately they cannot have sway over us because the temple is there. And so Jeremiah, as a prophet, in ancient Israel we see the offices of the king, the priests, and the prophet And the priests and the king often were in collusion with royal power and royal totalism, as we talked about three messages ago in this series. But here the priests or the prophets are being raised up to critique that power and to call people back to an authentic faith. And so this background of the text, the first three verses, uh, or the first section is verse 3 through 7, 8 through 11, then 12 through 15. A little more background in this text here, though, before I dig in. There's a profound conflict between the prophet Jeremiah and what the priests and the king want to see and how they see the temple. And I've said this before, that the powers of the world don't like the church and they will either try to crush it or co-opt it. Crush it or co-opt it. I think in the States we see a lot more of the co-option of the church and in Canada historically. And what happens then eventually is the church just becomes a wing, an arm of the state, and eventually everyone's like, why even bother what voice does the church have that's worth investing my life in? What point does the church have when the church gets so co-opted by the state? My Anabaptist Mennonite forebears have died, literally have been killed, uh, on the issue of separation of church and state. Baptists have a history, if you read in our longer statement of faith, have a history of talking about the church being free from the control of the state. That's one reason why the Baptists moved to North America, to see a separation of those things. That the church might not be so twisted into an arm of imperial or royal or party totalism and control and still stands as another organization and another power in the world as Jesus had intended with his kingdom or the church to be crushed. If you can't co-opt it, then we'll try to crush it. Sometimes states try to actually do both at the same time. The interesting thing is the crushing, I think, makes believers more aware of that the state is both blessed by God and also under the control of the evil one. We hold Romans 13 and 1 John 5, 19 together in tension with that. The state is not all good. The state is not all bad. Yes, the state is people, but people are also broken by sin, and you bring it together, that multiplies the goodness and the sin side. That's a whole other sermon that's not even in my notes. We'll just stop right there, take an offering again, and say, no, I'm just kidding. Look at your neighbor and say, it's good to be in God's house. So here we look at this text. Walter Brueggemann says that there's something about this dominant party, this theology, this temple ideology that Jeremiah is critiquing. Because they thought that the temple was an eternal sign that God would always bless that place, that land. As long as we kept the ritual going, everything would be fine. So you can imagine when Jeremiah preaches this sermon, the reactions of the people... Some of them wanted to kill him immediately. 
Others said, no, God is speaking through him. Others went back and forth, as we read in Jeremiah 26. Some of the Psalms even created a culture around this temple. We read in some of the Psalms where the worship was all around the going up to the house of the Lord. The the temple of the Lord is what that meant. But these claims that the state wanted to glom onto, hang onto, wanting to co-opt God, assumed something about God. They assumed that God was not an active and real partner in his creation. They assumed that God's voice had been controlled and co-opted and God would not find another way to speak if they could control the story and the narrative of the temple. But in the prophets we learned that even when the mechanism of religiosity becomes co-opted and inauthentic and broken down, the Spirit of God still works and God still loves His creation and He still loves His people even when we go astray and He woos and He chases them down. You see, the Spirit of God in Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, as one modern creed puts it, is the form of God present in the church and in the world. And the Spirit of God is not done, even though the enemy tries through sin and brokenness to neutralize these kingdom organizations and these kingdom principles, the Spirit of God raises up a prophet and he raises up Jeremiah. And so we come to this text. So verses 1 and 2 again, if you're following along, the Lord, the word of the Lord, a classic introduction to any prophetic word in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. Stand in the gate of the Lord's temple and proclaim this message Listen, all you people of Judah who have passed through these gates to worship the Lord, hear what the Lord has to say. So Jeremiah literally is positioning himself. If this were the temple in Jerusalem and there was one main court entryway, he positioned himself, we don't know which court, but probably one of the major ones, just right outside the door. If this was our building, Jeremiah would be standing right out there, right outside the door, proclaiming this message as you came in to worship this morning. Just think about that. But think about this, if our church was like the National Cathedral of Canada and he did it there. (laughs) Doesn't quite look like the National Cathedral, whatever that may look like in Canada, but that's where he was standing, we're told. Right outside of the door, the gateways into the courtyards of this temple. In verses 3 through 7, we have some interesting things going on. So verse 3 says, The Lord God who rules over all says, Change the way you've been living, do what is right. This temple sermon Uh, is the clarity that we don't get necessarily in the poetry and prose of most of this. Before Jeremiah was using all these lofty images about uh, a faithless partner or uh, this idea of a a brush or a hedge being broke down or the idea, again, of the people being the daughter of Zion and and sort of wandering off in the wilderness. And now he gets super concrete. This is the sermon where you're like, Pastor, you're being too poetic. Prophet, you're being too poetic. This is the sermon where I was like, all right, here are the brass tacks. I'm laying it out for you right now. Reform your ways and actions. Verse 4 says, stop putting your confidence in the false belief that says we are safe. And verse 4 is this litany that says the temple is here, the temple is here, the temple is here. I think many churches and Christians, when we forget that intention matters, I'm all for ritual because things form us that we repeat, but our intention in doing it matters when we come to those rituals. And if we forget that intention, we, it's simply an inauthentic ritual. But he said, if it's simply repeating, the temple is here, the temple is here, the temple is here, all will be well. And Jeremiah says, no, do not trust in that. Don't blindly trust this claim, this governmental religious cult claim. 
He's not rejecting everything, but he's saying that which is not in line with the Torah, that in line with obedience that I've called you to, will not make you safe. The temple and its royal liturgy, Jeremiah is saying, are being exposed as a means of social control. The king says, chill out everybody, we know bad things are happening, and we're doing this on the side and that on the side, but hey, the temple's still there, we're still doing the ritual, everything's going to be fine. Peace, peace, peace. In the book of Jeremiah, the word peace is generally not a good thing. People are saying, peace, 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 non-anxious presence. Well, we continue to do abominable things before the Lord and destructive things and violence and injustice and doing, worshiping every possible God an inch deep and a mile wide. How often have we sometimes in Canada and in North America said, And remember, they wanted to kill Jeremiah after this sermon, so don't shoot me. I'm just relaying how this might play out in our context. Disclaimer, caveat, legal legal notice. As long as we keep the lights on at Pilgrim, we'll be fine. You could almost hear a pin drop. Thank God for modern technology and whirling fans in the background. As long as we can keep this particular ministry going, everything's fine. Our hearts and our intention may be far from love of God and love of neighbor, but if we can, there are churches all over North America. The temple is here, the temple is here, the temple is here. The temple is here, the temple is here, the temple is here. Sometimes people complain about repetition in worship songs or old hymns. I'm not as worried about that as this kind of repetition. We can get another renter. We can get a cheaper pastor. Remember, you get what you pay for. Uh, <laughs> we can fire all the part-time staff. We can, we can, we can just keep the lights on. Uh, you know, we can just rotate people in. We can just, you know, we can just throw anybody up to do anything. The temple is here. The temple is here. The temple is here. We're okay. Everything's fine. But love of God and love of neighbor that goes outward and risks for the kingdom. Oh, how many churches are there? Remember, if that piques you or, or sort of causes something to rise within you, that's a call that the Lord is trying to speak to you. Don't resist it as they do in this passage. I think of this issue of what he's dealing with. And then he goes on and he says this. He brings back this free will thing and he says this. Guess what? Look at verse 5. You must change your way. You've been living and do what is right. You must treat one another fairly. And so he begins to deal with the larger political issue and the individual issue as well. And he says this in verse 6, Stop oppressing foreigners who live in your land. I don't have to pay attention or care, care about the immigrant or refugee. The temple is here. The temple is here. The temple is here. The lights are on. Stop oppressing foreigners who live in your land. And then he lists orphans, children who have lost their fathers, who would be completely destitute in this ancient situation. He said, stop oppressing them who have lost their fathers. And I think about this too as well. In the next one he says, the widows, women who have lost their husbands. Stop oppressing these people. We don't have to care about them. We got to keep the lights on. The temple is here. The temple is here. The temple is here. We could make a little catchy jingle out of that even. And they did. And he says this, stop killing innocent people in this land. Stop paying allegiance to the other gods. Stop being inauthentic with your worship. Sometimes we think, 
Well, there is a sort of a, there's a holy um, desire to learn from other religions and then there's an unholy version of it where we're trying to bring everything together. There's a holy sense in which the Spirit of God is using anything and everybody in all of creation to draw people to himself and ultimately to Jesus. And we can ask when there's honest pursuit of truth in another faith system, we can honestly say, uh, we can walk to an extent with that. But this is not what's going on here. They're just trying to sample everything and do everything superficially. No deep relationship with anything. But Yahweh, the one true God, calls them to go deep in relationship with him. And that requires an exclusive relationship with him. If you want to go deep in one relationship, you've got to limit and put boundaries and borders around the other ones. So he says, stop paying allegiance to all the other gods. It'll only bring about your ruin. And then he says this in verse 7 as we get to the end of this first section in his sermon. There's this if, if, verse 5, if you change your way, verse 7, if you stop doing these things, then I will allow you to continue to live in the land that I gave to your ancestors. So it's not about the temple, he says. It's about you making a choice. You have freedom. You have say-so. You have volition. There's a false Religious claim that usually is rooted in determinism that I have no say so, that I have no volition, that I have zero say in my life. Now, yes, there's a point at which we are given a certain set of factors that we are born into, family of origin, cultures, nation, all of those things, uh, experiences that we had. But at the end of the day, there still is a volition you have to do something with the grace that God has given you. If you will do this, then I will relent, the Lord says. Now, in the later book of Jeremiah, there's more hope than there is in this part of Jeremiah. But throughout the prophets, it is usually always an if-then situation. When God declares judgment in Hebrew Bible, it is not to sit back and say, oh, well, whatever will be, will be. It is the divine will of God. It is the particular meticulous sovereignty of God. He's going to destroy us. All right, let's go out and have some burgers and lunch because it's coming anyway. That's not the intent of prophecy in Hebrew Bible ever. The intent of prophecy is that God wants to provoke his people to awaken them, to respond to his graciousness because he is merciful and compassionate and all good and loving all the way down. His judgment, his anger lasts for a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. If you will turn, then I will restore, the Lord says. This is good news. So verse 7, we get that conditional statement again. If then. But unfortunately, this was not the first time this group got this message. This is a clear, another version of it. But then we get to the middle section here. Are you still with me? Say amen. I mean, I'm preaching to myself probably, but I hope at least a couple of you are with me this morning. The second part of the message, he said, you know, the first part is this boundary-based faith that tends to reduce it just to the mere ritual either goes overboard in legalism or goes to a very minimal thing they could do, which was keep the lights on and keep the ritual going, even if their heart intention wasn't there, doesn't sustain relationship. They reduced it down to this ultimate line-keeping, which was keeping a facility going in the name of the Lord. Verses 8 through 11 say this, but just look at you. You're putting your confidence in false belief that you will not deliver you. And then he begins to list straight out of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. He says this, you steal you murder, you commit adultery, you lie when you swear an oath, you sacrifice to the god Baal, you pay allegiance to other gods whom you have not previously known. Then, well, let's pause there, verse 11, just for a second, because that's quite a laundry list there. 
He says you steal the Eighth Commandment. You're denying the right of people to have property and enjoy God's good gifts of material, and you're envious, so you want more, and you're accumulating. You've become the ultimate consumer, we would say in modern language. You're inauthentic with stuff. Stuff rules you. You're not ruling it, and so you steal. You're violating the Sixth Commandment as well. He says you're killing Life is the most fundamental of human rights in the Bible. We should not ever put our place, ourselves in the place of taking another human life. I wrestle with that, what that means in terms of governments and policing and all of that, sort of as my Mennonite background. But the fundamental orientation of the Bible is towards a culture of life. We don't steal, we don't kill, we don't destroy to get our way. We don't destroy, uh, take that which we can't give back. And if you're super conservative evangelical, here's even a stronger argument for not killing. If you don't know that person's eternal destiny and you're involved in their death, whether it's through state-sanctioned violence or whether it's through straight-up murder, that you don't know, you may be hastening their eternal demise, sending them straight to hell. I never want to be in this place before the throne of God where I was like, yeah, I'm all for the death penalty and abortion and war and torture and murder and all of that. You know, if this is blessed by the state, it's fine. And the Lord said, they were one hair's breadth from receiving me and entering into my eternal kingdom, but because of your politics, you helped send them to hell. I never want to stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, you don't all have to agree with me on that, but wrestle with that. He says you are taking life. The culture of life is one of the most fundamental of human rights in the Bible, and they're taking it. But as long as we go to the temple, the temple, the temple, Yahweh will be okay. And the Lord says, I'm not having any of it. It's just because of daylight savings time that you're so quiet. You should say amen. Okay. We can disagree on policies. We can debate about that, but they're violating the sixth commandment. And he goes on and says, by the way, you're violating in verse, this verse that we just read, verses 9 through 10, this section, your adultery. Sex is powerful and forms bonds, but it has creative potential. It can build or destabilize generations. That's why God calls for covenants in how we practice and use our bodies, certainly with our sexuality. A lot of grace is required and a lot of intention is required to break the misuse of sex in our lives and in our culture. But he's calling them out and said, you just do whatever you want and say, the temple, the temple, the temple. And he gives two more here, real quick. Swearing falsely, practicing dishonest oath-taking. This was condemned in the Ten Commandments and Jesus makes it even clearer. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, every one of us in some way has participated in brokenness around life, sexuality, around desiring things that are not ours and going beyond, swearing falsely. And then finally, he says, no false gods, the first commandment. You shall have no other god before me. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping the queen of heaven. They're burning children at the altar of Molech, a Canaanite deity. They're doing all of these things while still keeping church going on Sundays. Well, in this case, it would be temple worship. Keeping it all going. And the Lord says, I'm not fooled. (laughs) I'm not fooled. And so it moves on through this passage as we see here. It says, do you think, verse 11, the temple I have claimed as my own is to be a hideout for robbers? Jesus quotes this, by the way, in the Gospels. My house is not to be a den of thieves. He said, do you think that's what I'm okay with? And apparently they got to a point of inauthenticity, such a high level of superficiality that as long as we do the performing and hiding, everything's going to be fine. 
and the king wanted this message reinforced, and the priests wanted this message reinforced. As long as we do that, everything will be fine. And God says, no, it's not. What does this mean in our lives today? Just to pause before we get to the last section here. What are some things that we can draw out of this? I think it's that God cares immensely about the intention we bring into every aspect of our lives. When we gather in worship, it's not all about me and what I can get out of it to be a consumer and then go on living my life untouched by his presence, but that there's something transformative that he wants to do when we gather in our little temples, as it were. There's something transformative that God desires. I think it's important to understand that God doesn't see really concretely that buildings are important. We live in a place where we need to gather and and God can use space and all of that. We're not Gnostic. We're not against material. But on the other hand, sometimes it can become all about that. I've had the joy of being in churches that don't have a building and they've reached many, many people for Christ. Often at some stage they went and got a building, but if the building ever becomes the focus of our practice, then there's something deeply amiss in our faith. That building, by the way, may not be this literal building. It may also be our sense of security. What the culture tells us is security. We have to wrestle with that. As long as I have a few things in line, I'm just going to give superficial lip service to my faith, whatever it may be, and the Lord calls them out on that. This is deep, heavy stuff, isn't it? Let's breathe for a moment. I'm going to, in fact, take a sip of coffee before I go farther into this message. You don't have to all look at me. You can look at your neighbor. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Appreciate that. It's the joy of being in a church this size. We get the immediate feedback, right? (laughs) I want to say one more thing before moving on to the last three verses. Verse 11, Jesus quotes in the New Testament... He said, take note, for I've seen for myself what you've done, says the Lord. The Lord sees. God's not fooled. Just like the little Maxwell and his dad, Todd. How many times did you not hear me, Max? Oh, two or three. God's not fooled. And he goes on and says this. Uh, I think it's important to see this idea of the temple. In the New Testament, post-Jesus, we can read this text a little differently. Thank God that God came down and put on flesh, dwelt among us, took on all the sins and brokenness forward and backward in time and bore them on his body on the cross. Thank God for that. Thank God that we can come to him at any time when we've gone astray into the superficiality of our culture and our time and we can say, Jesus, help me, help my unbelief. Help me have faith. Help me to teach us how to pray like the disciples did. First John says this, that we have an advocate with the Father that we can go to at any time in our time of need and we can receive mercy and grace. We have an advocate with Jesus. Uh, It also says this about temples. Peter and Paul proclaim that the church, as the body of Christ, is a spiritual temple in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 1 and 2, and 1 Peter 2. That in the New Testament, this, 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 this is not the temple. This is the temple people. Paul says this, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have from God? And you 
corporately and individually. You are not your own, but you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which is not just my body, but our bodies, our embodiedness together. Glorify God. For you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When I got saved, oh, I, am I going along today or that clock's off? I'm going long. I've got to land it. Okay. You are the temple. So let's get the last verses and takeouts. Third part of the sermon. The ancient story at Shiloh. Shiloh was one of the first places of worship in ancient Israel, and God let it be destroyed. He's using this story to tell them, if you think this temple is what it's all about, look what I did to Shiloh. If you think, you, if you think you're any different from Shiloh, forget it, people. I can bring this temple down as well. This enraged the people. They did not want to hear this word because they thought they were better than those Shilohites back in the day. And he says, no, I can do this as well. And so he says this, Go to the place in Shiloh where I allowed myself to be worshipped in the early days. See what I did. It says, you've also done all these things, verse 13, and I've spoken to you over and over and over again, but you've not listened. And so I have called you to repent, but you've not listened. So I'm going to take it down. I'm going to raise it to the ground. I will destroy this place that I gave to you and your ancestors. And I will drive you out from my sight, just like I drove out your relatives, the people of the north, the Israelites. This Lenten season, we live after this. We live in the time of Christ. But I think there's some things that we can take out this morning from this text. And note, next Sunday, we, get into, we start to have more hope. So if you're feeling dark, just hang on. We're almost there, okay? We're getting there. But it is not wrong to spend time talking about repentance and God calling us out because sometimes the message in our culture is everything I am is beautiful and a butterfly and it's wonderful. And sometimes if I've been beaten down, I need to hear that, right? If I've been in a toxic situation or my family could never affirm anything, like I do need to hear those messages of hope and encouragement. Absolutely. But we also need to hear that there's something that in us, that there's a war within us. And Christianity gives words to the struggle, the tension, some of those tensions we live into by God's grace and in his weakness, in our weaknesses, his strength is made perfect and we wrestle with that. But other things we simply need to say, Lord, I give this to you, I repent, I turn from this and we begin to act out and have behaviors that to go in a different direction. And so we live with that and we have language for that. We see it as a little more complex that there are things within us that we let the Lord call out. So here are the takeouts today. Takeout number one is this. Here's this most superficial application. The building, the facades, the things we literally build sometimes get overvalued. Can I tell you in Vancouver that most of our real estate is overvalued? Is this a shock to anybody? It shouldn't be, but it is. You drop this into many, most cities across North America and the value would go probably down by 50% or more depending on the city. <laughs> They quite literally overvalued the bricks and mortar, the stone and the wood and the cedar and the temple. The temple or the building for churches is a tool. It is no more or no less. God can use it. It can be a place of encounter, but it's a place of encounter because of what the intention of the worshipers bring into the place, not because of the building itself. Buildings are tools. I hope to God that there's a move of the Holy Spirit 
So much so that as you're inviting friends and neighbors and people are turning to Jesus and questioning Jesus, that we outgrow this room. I pray prophetically that this room is not our future. I pray that we would pack this thing out and get to a point where we got to go rent in a school or a gym or a whatever or a theater. I pray to the Lord that this building is not a limitation on the power and purpose of God for Pilgrim Church in the future. But, 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 but... Yes, we've invested blood, sweat, and tears. Yes, and dollars, lots of dollars. But this is not the temple. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are not your own, but you've been bought with the price, the precious blood of Jesus? This is overvalued. We need to lower it. Our security is not our home. First time I've not owned a home and pastored for a long time. I'm preaching this to myself. Or had an equity allowance. We can negotiate later. Their security is not in this building. It's not in our job ultimately. It's not in our education. Whatever we enshrine that we're trying to build our lives upon, it first must be on Jesus alone. Not the temple, the temple, the temple. However, we construe that. The second thing is authenticity. Authenticity is important. It's attractive both internally with ourselves and with others. We need to be willing to enter into the pain of our lives, the bad pain, and choose the good pain of being more transparent in our relationships. There's a lot more I want to say about that, but I'll pack it for, save that for later. But this piece of authenticity is huge. If we don't get beyond performing and hiding with each other, we won't see those deeper changes and challenges that bring life. I would say one, two more things. Authenticity is not the final goal. Health and growth that comes with it is towards Jesus. We want to be risking more with our lives, opening our lives more to others. Be the kind of friend you want the church to be towards others and in the world. It's not the final goal, but it is part of the process of experiencing more health and life. And then finally, I just want to say this because it's a heavy text. God raises up the prophets because he desperately loves the people. And that language comes through in Jeremiah as well. If he didn't care about them, he just would say, that's it, curtains, all creation, undone. But he cares deeply about each of us that he has made and formed in his image and likeness. So when you read passages from the Old Testament and it seems like, oh my goodness, so much darkness, so much Oh, I don't feel encouraged. Understand that the motivation of God behind all of it is to help people enter into flourishing, authentic life. That his heart desire is that you walk in mercy and grace and newness and hope and life. That when he speaks like this, as New Testament says, he disciplines those he loves in order to bring out new and glorious things. He prunes the tree that there might be new growth. He cuts back the vine in order that it might bear more fruit in the future. But the cutting is never fun and the pruning we don't like to sign up for. But the end product is so much more worth it than continuing on as life was. Stand with me this morning. Let us pray. Are you glad you're here today? Those of you that are, say it loudly for those that are not. Are you glad you're here today? <laughs> okay, amen, amen. The Lord, is, the Lord is in this place. He is moving in this house. We're seeing those shoots of life 
But he's still tilling the soil, as someone said earlier this morning. He's working on that. So let's pray and enter into that this Sunday of Lent. Father, we thank you for your presence here today. We thank you that you are at work in this house. We thank you that the bricks and mortar are not the temple. It's just a tool for those that are when we gather, for we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God, help us to live a life of turning, of repentance. That there is freedom and authenticity first with you and with others. Authenticity that says, I'm not where I want to be and I sense that you have more for me than I realize yet. Open us, God. Open our hearts so we're not sitting on the judgment throne but letting you speak into us. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd continue that work at Pilgrim Church, that we would get on the journey with you towards authenticity, towards transformation, towards flourishing as women and men created in your image. And thank you that you send the prophets because you've not given up on us, but because of your wild, untamed love, you pursue us still. In Jesus' name, amen.